Well, if you'll keep your Bibles open and flip over to the New Testament to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. A little bit different this morning is I'm going to pull some themes to speak to the question, what makes the church attractive? What makes the church attractive? Throughout this chapter of, of Paul's letter to uh, his disciple Titus as he's been commissioned to go out into all the cities of the island of Crete and to plant churches. One of the things in which Paul has done is given us the reasons in which he has commanded the people in these local congregations to live in certain ways. And he ultimately says there in verse 10 that we addressed last week, so that they may adorn or beautify the doctrine of God our Savior. And so I want to read for us uh, verses 1 through 10. We'll begin handling 11 through 15 after the Advent season. But for this morning, let us read again verses 1 through 10 of Titus chapter 2. Let's pray one more time for help before, our, uh, before we read. Father in heaven, we do uh, ask for your Holy Spirit to help us, to give us right understanding of your word. We pray, Lord, that we would see the call of the Christian life is, is one of Christ's likeness, one of Christian righteous living. Uh, and so, Father, use this time in your word this morning to convict where it ought to convict, encourage where it ought to encourage, save sinners, sanctify believers. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Titus chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women are likewise to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may not or so that an opponent rather may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever and ever. Well, as uh, you all probably are well aware of, uh, we are close to the Advent season beginning here uh, in the life of our church. Just a side note, there's an Advent schedule in your bulletin uh, each Sunday evening. We have different things going on, uh, starting with next Sunday evening, our choir will be performing their annual Christmas cantata. But as I was thinking about Advent, and as I was working on the, the annual Advent devotional that we put out to uh, our church, I was, I was meditating upon Luke chapter 9, where the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, were, were with Jesus when he was transfigured there on the mountaintop. 
you probably know this scene very well. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, the inner circle of his disciples, and he takes them to the mountain, and before their eyes, he is transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His garments were white and pure, and on the right and on the left of him stood Moses and Elijah, representing for uh, the disciples there gathered on the mountaintop that all of the prophecies of the Old Testament and all of the law in the Old Testament ultimately pointed to Jesus. Now, what's fascinating about that scene or that story is that Peter, having this mountaintop experience of the Christian faith, begins to be driven by his emotion. Now, we know something of Peter. He's an emotionally driven man, whether it be anger or pride. Or, or, or here, his, his emotions are actually towards a, a, good, a good thing. Here's Jesus Christ with Elijah and, and Moses, and he says, Lord, we should, we should want this moment to last forever. It was, you know, well-intended. So let us build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, so that we might stay up here forever. And in a word of rebuke, the Father of heaven speaks. And he speaks to those three disciples and he says, This is my beloved Son, hear him. Now at first glance, that might not seem as a rebuke to you. It's just a, a reaffirmation, you will, of what the Father has said at the baptism of Jesus, right? As he comes out of the water, the dove representing the Holy Spirit falls upon him and the voice from heaven cries out, This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. It's the public initiation, if you will, of his preaching ministry. But here, at the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter takes it as a rebuke. Because Peter, in 2 Peter 1 is thinking about this very scene. And he writes, And we heard his voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. He's talking about the Father's voice. Sounding, trumpeting is literally how the Greek says it. Trumpeting from heaven on this holy mountain. And it said this, Listen to him. Listen to the words of Christ. So thinking about that, Peter goes on and he says, For we have a more sure word of prophecy which we would do well to heed or to listen to. What the, what the Apostle Peter is saying here is that the Scriptures are far better, infinitely more sure than that of experience. The Word of God is far better infinitely more sure than that of experience. And so he goes on and he begins to speak of this idea of sufficiency to the Scriptures. And what 2 Peter 1 will do is the same thing in which Paul has done here. He starts off in chapter 2 with this sure foundation that is the sound doctrine of our Bibles. And then he begins to say, and this is what it means for you, older men. This is what it means for you, older women. This is what it means for you, younger men. This is what it means for you, younger women. This is what it means to be a good father, a good mother, a good wife, a good husband, 
a good employee, a good employer. This is what sound doctrine matters for the Christian life. And so what Paul is concerned about here is he writes this letter to Titus. And he's done it up until this point that we've reached this morning with Titus chapter 2, verse 10. He points to the authority of the Word of God and then he begins to apply that sound doctrine in Christian living. In Christian living, he points to preachers, elders, the older generation, the younger generation, men, women, and so on. And he says, this is what it looks like to live in righteousness. And this is what will make the church attractive in the island of Crete. This is what we do to adorn the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What we might say is this is what it looks like to bring reformation not only to our church, but also our community. To go out and live in a way that is Christ-like. And I don't think we have to debate this very long. I think that we all understand that there is a, a critical need for reformation in our own day. And we immediately, when I say that, we begin to think about all the evil that's outside of the church. We begin to think about all the sin that the world is committing. We think about all the things that the world has said is right and good, which God has called wicked and evil. But, but actually, what we see throughout history is that reformation, the greatest enemy to reformation is often not the evil in the world out there, but it's the bad understanding of the gospel and the Christian lifestyle that exists within the church. Because what Paul is directly trying to contradict here in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, is this counterfeit emotionalism, this counterfeit experience within the church that has nothing to do with Christian living. You know, oftentimes in the evangelical church, we might call it something of revival. And revival is a good thing. Revival is something that I pray for actually daily within the life of the church and for our community here in Dillon. But the problem is the revival that we see within the church is often not biblical revival. Biblical revival brings individuals and churches back to God's Word. It brings it back to the grace that is given to us through the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It gives us a recognition of our sins and calls us to gospel living. What revival looks like today oftentimes is this emotional high, intense worship, flamboyant preaching, and, and this adrenaline rush, you might say. Is, is the sign, is the evidence of God's presence in our midst. But Paul is saying that's counterfeit. Paul is saying that's not the Christian life. Paul is looking to something different. Paul's not looking for this emotional mountaintop experience, is he? Paul's looking at everyday Christian living. He, he's pointing to Christ's likeness in every facet of our life. Paul is saying... The pilgrimage of God's people is a tough slogging alone day by day in our homes, in our workplaces, in our church. 
You know, it would be really easy for the people of God to, to think that the Christian life is just this constant hive of celebration. But what, what the Apostle Paul is actually getting to here is, is that there's nothing to celebrate if, if the people of God in the local church aren't living the truth of the Scripture out by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, one of the, the membership vows that we asked James this morning as a session, would he endeavor by the power of the Holy Spirit, to live as a follower of Jesus? And of course, the answer is, I will. But you understand what that means, don't you? For him, it's how to be a faithful, Christ-honoring son and student, grandson, young member here in the church. We even talked in length about how does a, a young man in his you know, not even in his teen years yet. How does he serve and work in the church? When's the last time you've thought about that? How do I serve in the life of the church? What does my life look like in a Christ-honoring, Christ-like way at First Presbyterian Church? Beyond that, what does it look like in my home? How I interact with my husband's wives and husbands. How I love my wife as Christ loved the church. You know, one of the things that is troubling about looking for these, these high, flamboyant, emotional experiences instead of focusing upon everyday Christ-like living is that one, we'll create for ourselves some sort of glamorous, super-Christian that, that now everybody is sub-part of me because they're not living on this mountaintop experience. You know, that would have been real easy for Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John could have trotted off the mountain and they could have said, look, look at you. Look at you other nine disciples. I was up there with Jesus and I saw the radiance of His glory. Who are you to think that you're a disciple of Jesus? Think that, to think that you follow Jesus. That would have been real easy, wouldn't it? But was there anything special in and of themselves, Peter, James, and John, that was worthy of that experience? Absolutely no. Peter's dropped the ball already. Peter's going to drop the ball again. He fails in the face of confrontation. If he was to live in those emotional experiences, these, these flamboyant circumstances of spirituality, he would begin to beat his chest and look down upon the other disciples and say, listen, I'm a better Christian than you. I've had this emotional experience. So it could cause pride, couldn't it? But it also, and I think this is even more dangerous, it secondly could, could cause a, a false assurance. It could cause a false assurance in the people because what they're saying is, listen, I've, I've lived on the Mount of Transfiguration. I've come face to face with Jesus and now I'm assured of my salvation because I've witnessed this. I've cried when a missionary was given a, an update or I was, you know, I felt something in my soul while we were singing this hymn. All those are good things, don't get me wrong. But if we're banking on our salvation because of these flamboyant spiritual experiences, we are, we are in trouble, beloved. Because what is, 
What is being described here in Titus chapter 2, this faithful, everyday Christian living to show that you're a child of the Most High God is not a new endeavor for the Apostle Paul. He's thinking about the, the Old Testament Scriptures that he knew well. Because in the Old Testament you have prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Amos who are dealing with these, these mountaintop experiences, you might say. These quote-unquote revivals that really weren't biblical revivals. And, and God said, I look upon that. I look upon that. And it stinks to my nose. It's a stench. In fact, in Isaiah 1, God looks at the people who are called by His name and He, he sees their, their flamboyant emotional experiences of the Christian life. And he, these are, this is hard, but listen. He says, my soul hates that. My soul hates that. I'm weary of bearing with them. Why would the Lord say something like that? Because their worship, these emotional experiences never drove the people of God to righteous living. And so he says, I cannot endure their iniquity any longer. They need to wash themselves, make themselves clean, put away the evil of their doings before my eyes. They need to cease to do sin, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. So in other words, God rejected their flamboyant emotional experiences and really wanted heart reformation. He wanted real Christian living. He saw these emotional mountaintops and he said, I don't care anything about that. I actually hate it because it's not leading to a newness of life. He didn't see a people of God walking with him in righteous living in Christ's likeness. No, he, he just saw a bunch of people who were driven by emotion. The same thing happens in Ezekiel 33, 30 through 33. And this one was a hard one for me to write because Ezekiel sees this intense passion from the people for his preaching. They love to hear his preaching and they even start telling their neighbors, you should hear the prophet Ezekiel's preaching. It's great. It's really good. You should come. And God told Ezekiel, don't get really excited about that, Ezekiel. Because they, they love to hear you preach, but they're not actually doing anything that you say. They're not really hearing the Word of God. They're not applying it to their lives. And so he says, they sit before me, they hear your words, but they do not do them. Therefore, I hate their iniquity. You know, I was thinking about this, and I want to touch on what, what reformation, what real revival looks like here in just a second, but, but I was thinking about this when I was eating a bowl of Lucky Charms cereal this week. I, I, I dropped, uh, you know, I was taking the, the kids, the two girls, to, to mom's for her to watch, and, and I was hungry, so I grabbed the box of cereal out of the pantry, and I poured me a big bowl, and I, I I took a big bite and I thought, this tastes like sugary styrofoam. Maybe you love Lucky Charms. I'm a big cereal guy. Maybe you love Lucky Charms and that's offensive to you. I'm really sorry if it is. But, but I mean, you think about it, right? I mean, you've got these marshmallows that really 
aren't marshmallows, and you've got this cereal that's really sugary, but, but it, it actually doesn't have much taste beyond the sugar. And, and, and so I actually looked at Anna Kate, and I said, why do you like this? Why do you like Lucky Charms? And she goes, the box is pretty. <laughs> it's a marketing genius, isn't it? You, you've got this, you know, this little jingle, they're magically delicious. You know, I mean, we all know where, where we're coming from. But it's a sugar high. That's mostly why kids like it. It's a sugar high. But it doesn't satisfy hunger, does it? It might make you full for a moment, but sugary cereals that are, are beautifully packaged, the expectations are so high, I'm going to eat this and, and it's going to be the best thing I've ever ate in my life. And, and it's, in 15 minutes, it's gone. And, and there's something of that, I think, that is often sought out by Christians today, they, they really don't want the tough, everyday Christian living. They want these sugary spiritual highs that last for a moment and then quickly vanish away. What, what the Apostle Paul is trying to get to here is the same thing that the Father in heaven says at the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved son's words. You need to hear them. You need to heed to them. And so Paul here in Titus, he's not the least bit interested in a, in a, in a search for emotionalism. He's desiring much more than that, isn't he? he he's, he's desiring men, women, boys, and girls to, to walk in holiness. He, he's desiring how the church is to be attractive to the world around them, how they are to, to change their culture, how they are to lead in reformation. He says it's not going to be revivalism. It's going to be real reformation. It's going to be real Christ-likeness. It's going to be real gospel living. And, and if we were to just simply look through the themes here in Titus 2, 1 through 10, I mean, you'll see many things here. How Paul tells Titus there in verse 1, you have been raised up to teach what is accordance or what is in accordance with, with sound doctrine. You are, to, you are to preach the Word in season and out of season. Be ready to declare the whole counsel of God. And so in our prayers for real, genuine, biblical revival, we need to pray that the God would that God would raise up men who would lead the church in real biblical ways, who will guard the pulpit with, with real biblical zeal to make sure the, the Scriptures are boldly proclaimed. But we also need to be praying that there would also be not emotionalism, but that we would really experience the love of God as He has declared to us in the Gospel. That if we talk about the grace of God, we should be walking in joy and assurance because God has met us with grace. If we talk about the, the judgment of God, we should tremble in our boots if we're sinners, but also rejoice that the judgments of God has been taken away from us as Christians. We need to be like Moses and pray, Lord, if Your presence doesn't go with us, we're not moving. If Your presence will not go with us, we're not going. You know, this call to the Christian living is not some sort of dry theology, but it's, 
It's a religion that, that has both word and deed. And that's what the Apostle Paul wants. He wants the Word of God to take deep root in the, in the people's lives so that they might live out holiness and, and biblical righteousness. And so we need to pray for that as well. And we need, to, we need to pray. We need to pray that we would not confuse emotionalism with God's presence. We, 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 you know, we don't get to schedule revivals, do we? No, the Lord pulls out His Spirit when He desires to. So we pray not for lucky charms, but we pray for real meat of the Gospel to, to, to impact the, the listener, to save sinners, to sanctify believers, to apply it to our everyday living. And what happens, what do we see when Reformation, real biblical revival finally comes? Well, what Paul says is you see real gospel living. You see a people, a church that follows God with all of their hearts. You see a, a church that serves God alone in all that they do. You, you think about how he speaks here, how he speaks here to the employees. Something is, something is distinct as being an employee. What does he say here? The way that you work, the way that you honor your boss, the, the way that you interact with your coworkers, this gospel that you believe impacts the way that you do those things. It impacts the way that we're daddies and mommies. It impacts the way that we're grandparents, elders, and deacons. It impacts the way that we're men and women. The gospel of God seeks to, to impact each and every facet of your life. So much so that we have a heart that is full of the gospel that tears down completely the systems and the, idolo uh, the, the ideologies of this idolatrous world. You know, I've said repeatedly that the, that the island of Crete was one that was sin-filled. It had many different idols and many different gods. And, and the way in which Paul says sound doctrine will impact your life is that there's no room in your minds or in your hearts for idolatrous things. But you are so filled up with the Word of God that you walk in the paths of holiness and righteousness. Don't despise the day of small things, brothers and sisters. Don't despise the ordinary. It's through the ordinary means of grace that God calls sinners and sanctifies His people. And it's to an ordinary life of just honoring Christ, following Jesus, that you're being called to this morning. No matter what it might be, no matter what spheres of influence you might find yourself in, God is just simply calling you to the ordinary life of being a Christian. And He says, I love verse 10, He says, this is the way that we adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank You for the opportunity to come to Your Word. We pray, Lord, that we would be those who beautify 
the gospel of God and the way that we live, that we can make the Christian message attractive to unbelievers because we are those who live out the gospel in which we believe. May we not be those who blaspheme the the holy religion, but Lord, let us be those who who live out Christ-likeness, whose words and, and deeds match so that so that we might be influential in the world around us. Lord, let us not give ourselves to emotionalism nor strategy or programs, but let us be a people who are all about the virtue and the holiness of us as your people. So grow us up in Christ's likeness and let us make an impact to the nations. In Christ's name we ask these things. Amen.